Our scripture lesson is found in the Gospel of John at chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They said to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. This is the word of the Lord. So when I left the house about um, 6.45 this morning, my wife asked if she could read me her sermon, so she read it real fast, real quickly, and I listened to it, and I thought... Gee, there's a couple of points in there I'd like to use. (laughs) And then I get here, and the giving tree is perfect. (laughs) But I'm too tied to a manuscript to be that spontaneous. So instead, you all get a long theological discourse today. (laughs) But stay with me. I know. No tomatoes. Let us pray. Lord Emerson once wrote, There is truth concealed in prayer and sermons, though foolishly spoken, yet wisely heard. Our prayer for this series of sermons during Lent is this, However foolishly spoken, may these sermons be wisely heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. In the 1980s and 1990s, with families spread out among three states, I spent a lot of highway time between Texas and Tennessee and Iowa. In those days of cassette tapes and boat-length Oldsmobiles, I listened to the not-yet-disgraced humorist and and storyteller Garrison Keillor, who was at the height of his popularity on the Minnesota Public Radio show, A Prairie Home Companion. One of the monologues, stunning when I heard it the first time and no less so when I listened to it several times afterward, was entitled Hog Slaughter. This is the time of year, Keeler began, when people would slaughter back when people did that. Raleigh and Eunice Hochstetter, I think, were the last in Lake Wobegon. They kept pigs, and they'd slaughter them in the fall when the weather got cold and the meat would keep. I went to see them slaughter hogs once when I was a kid, along with my cousin and my uncle, who was going to help Raleigh. When you slaughter pigs, it takes away your appetite for pork for a while. Because the pigs let you know that they don't care for it. 
They don't care to be grabbed and dragged over to where the other pigs went and didn't come back. It was quite a thing for a kid to see, to see living flesh and the living insides of another creature. I expected to be disgusted by it, but I wasn't. I was fascinated. I got as close as I could. And I remember that my cousin and I sort of got carried away in the excitement of it all. And we went down to the pig pen and we started throwing little stones at pigs to watch them jump and squeal and run. And all of a sudden I felt a big hand on my shoulder and I was spun around and my uncle's face was three inches from mine. He said, if I ever see you do that again... I'll beat you till you can't stand up. Do you hear? And we heard. I knew at the time that his anger had to do with the slaughter and that it was a ritual and it was done as a ritual. It was done swiftly and there was no foolishness. No joking around, very little conversation. People went about their jobs, men and women, knowing exactly what to do. And always with respect for the animals that would be our food. And our throwing stones at pigs violated this ceremony and this ritual which they went through. It was a powerful experience. Life and death hung in the balance. A life in which people made do, made their own, lived off the land, lived between the ground and God. When Keeler told this story, even over the cassette tapes, I could tell there was absolute silence in the audience. It was as if the doors to the theaters, theater had opened and a spirit of reverence, holiness, awe had swept in over the auditorium like smoke from dry ice. Everyone was silenced by sacrifice. In Christian tradition, we say as a matter of course that the death of Christ involves sacrifice. Christ sacrificing his life for us or his being sacrificed for us. Along with scapegoat, deliverance, the tree, and the serpent, sacrifice is one of five objects of nature or human experiences associated with the cross of Christ, on which I will be preaching during these Sundays in Lent. As the church has equated sacrifice with Christ's death, different and nuanced theological associations have arisen over the centuries. A major set of associations focus on the impact of the death of Christ on God. In one version, God is angry with human sin, and in order to placate God's anger, Christ is sacrificed. In another version, God's justice is violated by human sin, 
Someone must bear the punishment for divine justice to be satisfied. With his death, Christ pays the price in our stead, takes the punishment on our behalf, and God's justice is satisfied. In these understandings of sacrifice, it is God who changes. Another major association between the cross and the sacrifice of Christ involves a change in human beings. In this version, Christ is willing to go the distance to the cross out of the depth of his loyalty and love for us, just as a parent is willing to sacrifice his or her own life for the life of their child. When we realize the depth of Christ's love and sacrifice, our hearts are moved from selfishness and sin to awe and gratitude. His sacrifice influences us to a greater morality. It brings about a change, not in God, but in us. A third association of cross and sacrifice involves a change in the world. In this understanding, sin and evil have become so powerful in the world that God must come and declare war on evil, fight it at every front, lose his life in battle to it, and yet prevail over it in a war that God ultimately wins. In this association, Christ is like a smoke jumper who parachutes from heaven into the eye of the forest fire, does battle, loses his life, but in the process brings the fire under control. In this understanding of sacrifice, it is the world which changes because of Christ's sacrifice. Each of these viewpoints has merit. Centuries of theological formulation lie behind each. Each speaks a part of the truth of how the death and resurrection of Christ bring about redemption. But in the passage we have read today, we have read an image of sacrifice that differs from these we have been considering. This image is more associated with the cycle of nature. In John's Gospel at the Passover festival, people from outside of Jerusalem, known as Gentiles, outside of Judaism, come to see Jesus and ask to be his followers. When Jesus sees them coming, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is accepting and claiming for himself the only title that was said about him that he claims for himself. When Jesus uses the word hour in John, he's not speaking of the time of day, but rather he is speaking of the time when he will be glorified by being lifted up on the cross and in the resurrection. Immediately after Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he then adds a one-sentence parable that is attached to the cycle of life that is the giving tree. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, he says, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. Unlike the other associations of sacrifice and cross that we've looked at today, in this association, sacrifice is related to the cycle of life and death in nature. Jesus is saying that as in the cycle of all living things, his death bears fruit that changes what must be changed. The human heart, the world. His death overcomes the power of sin and evil. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Francis M. Young, a scholar that I am following for this series, points out that as living creatures, we are entirely dependent for our sustenance on the cycle of nature, the cycle of the creation of food, the destruction and consumption of life of plants or animals, which become our food. In this cycle, we plant seed. When it grows, we pluck up its leaves or its fruit. We then grind it and cook it and eat it that we may have life. Every time we consume food, a plant or an animal has died that we may live. This planting and growing, plucking and preparing and eating is one reason the sacrifice of Christ is so intimately bound up with ritual, with the sacrament of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Roman Catholic Mass. Take, eat. This is my body broken for you, Jesus says. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Shed. For the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you eat this bread. Whenever you drink this wine. You show forth the Lord's death. Until he comes again. This cycle of birth and death. Of bearing fruit. And being plucked and eaten. Is why we react to Christ's death. With such awe. We don't joke around. We have very little conversation. We don't throw stones at that which will become our food. Rather, we encapsulate this cycle and this sacrifice in ritual, the sacrament of Holy Communion. But always, always, the source of what is sacrificed is God, both plant and animal, bread and wine come from God as Christ comes from God. When we realize that God is the source of both the life cycle and the sacrifice involved in it, we cannot help but be moved to reverence towards God. We are moved to reverence when life is created or when life is taken. We are moved to reverence at the sheer giftedness of life and our utter dependence on God for the food and grain by which life is sustained. 
We are moved to reverence for the earth into which seed has fallen, the earth on which animals have lived and breathed. We are moved to reverence for the soil in and on which both plant and animal have grown. We are moved to reverence for the water by which the lives of both have been sustained. We are moved to reverence for the air both have breathed. And reverence leads us to share the fruits of the earth, meat, grain, water, with others. We do not honor sacrifice when we hoard it for ourselves. Finally, as we are moved to reverence for God who is the source of life, we respond by offering all life for God. As Jesus concludes this parable, those who love, who protect, who clutch, who hang on to their life in this world lose it. And those who hate their life in this world, who are willing to give it up, will keep it for eternal life. Just as God offers all God has for us, we in turn offer all we have for God. We offer our hearts and minds and wills, our loves and our losses, the work of our hands, the thoughts of our minds, the imagination of our hearts, the riches of our homes and nation. In offering all we have to God, we do so not to escape God's punishment, not even to restore God's sense of justice, We simply give all to God as God has given all to us. Last week in adult education, Dr. Jerry Kennedy, a literature professor from LSU, described the concept of nation in human history. And among the many things he said, he said the nation is such a powerful force that people are willing to sacrifice their lives for it. In our congregation and in this community, we know something of the power of the nation and of our willingness to sacrifice for it. Every November, we remember people who have given up their lives for our nation. We know people who put their lives on the line every day in service to our nation. Many of us in this room, in the work of our lives, have vowed to support and defend the Constitution of our nation, to support and defend our nation. We know the reality and power of sacrificing for our nation. We know its necessity and its honor. It is probably the highest form of public sacrifice that we know. But something greater than even nation is here in this room, in this season. Living between the ground and God, we give all that we have and we give all that we are to God. And we trust 
that in God's good care, what we sacrifice will bear fruit beyond all that we could intend, beyond all that we could imagine. Amen.